This Connect podcast series is brought to you by Talent Talks and Life Online. Welcome. I'm Karen Cole, Editor-in-Chief of Talent Talks and Life Online. everyone. Joining me today is Caitlin Watson, a talent management consultant based out of Johannesburg, South Africa. Her article, Feel Like an Imposter in Your Role as Manager, has recently been published on talenttalks.net, but I wanted to take some time with her to discuss this syndrome in much more detail because many of us have at some point had to confront our own inner imposter. Welcome, Caitlin. Thanks so much, Karen. I'm really excited to be part of the podcast series. I'm so passionate about the topic of imposter syndrome, so I'm hoping that all your listeners will really get a lot of value out of this. So let's start off with what exactly is imposter syndrome? So imposter syndrome is really around perceived fraudulence. So loosely defined, it's defined as doubting your abilities and essentially feeling like a fraud. So very often it affects high achieving people and these people find it difficult to accept and acknowledge their accomplishments, even though there is evidence that they are successful in that particular area. So how would somebody come to know if they had imposter syndrome or if they truly aren't competent in the role that they are performing? That is a common question. I think 70% of people experience imposter syndrome at some stage uh, in their lives. So it really is common. So essentially, when we're undertaking a more complex role or starting a new role or a more complex task, we often feel a level of anxiety around whether we'll be able to manage the expectations of that role. And it takes time for people to develop competence in that particular role. And so they're likely to experience a dip in confidence. But once competence improves and they feel that they're more uh, capable in the role and more comfortable, they're more easily able to navigate their environment with a much higher level of confidence. It tends to be temporary. Someone who's struggling with imposter syndrome specifically is someone who experiences persistent feelings of self-doubt. So this doesn't go away, regardless of the length of time in their role, regardless of how competent they are, and regardless of any success they have in that role. So for me, it's around the persistence, this persistent nature of it. And very often, if we if we think about the signs of imposter syndrome, we feel that we are constantly tricking people into believing that we're good at something, and that really it's just a matter of time before they find out that we're not actually good at the role. We have a constant fear of being called out for not being good enough, and so we, we almost feel that we are, are going to be found out at some stage. We externalize success, so very often we'll say, gosh, if we've done a really good job, we give credit to other people for it and say, no, 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 it was because somebody else helped me with it and really it was a collective effort when in actual fact it may have been 90% of your own work. Very often we, if someone's struggling with imposter syndrome, they convince themselves that achieving difficult goals is more down to luck. So someone with imposter syndrome tends to set incredibly challenging and very hard goals. And then when they achieve them, because of course they will do anything to achieve them, they will work themselves to the bone to make sure they achieve them. They put it down to luck and say, no, no, it was, you know, the timing was right. The I had the right kind of tools. And then they 
they don't acknowledge the hard work that's gone into it. And then the final sign for me is that when people, they believe that everyone else is more competent. So they kind of feel that everyone else has it together. Everybody must know more than them. And so they they generally feel that they have that imposter syndrome as a result of that, which is very often not the case. Come about this topic. So what interested you specifically and, and in your own practice, where have you seen this playing out? So I didn't realize it, but I have struggled with imposter syndrome for a large part of my career. And I'd attended a really great workshop that kind of helped me name the challenge that I'm experiencing around imposter syndrome. So I'd always felt this feeling of needing to overwork and needing to prove myself and, um, you know, convinced that everybody in corporate knows more than I do simply because they've, they've been exposed to that. And I mean, I started my career in teaching. So I went into corporate believing that everyone was more competent because I was just a teacher and I couldn't know as much as everyone else. And so going into a career or going into your first kind of corporate role with that, it's it's a very difficult thing to start your career off with. So I tended to overwork, kind of thought that I had to prove myself and show everybody that teachers are competent and they are capable and we can add value. And so it was really only once I attended this workshop that I was able to identify my experience with imposter syndrome and say, I can recognize myself in that. And now that I've named it, now that I know that it's common, because I did a lot of reading on it, I did a lot of research on it because I thought, gosh, other people must be experiencing this. At, once I was able to name it and recognize what my triggers are, I have now been able to manage it. And so once I started sharing this workshop that I had attended and sharing the research and the books that I'd read on it, I realized that so many people experience it and struggle with it. People would say to me, oh my gosh, but that's me. Whether it were doctors that I was speaking to, whether it was mothers, executives in corporate environments and professionals, people that were really specialists at what they do, were saying, gosh, but I have that. I experienced that. And so I realized the relevance of the topic. I think in my current environment and working, coaching and helping leaders specifically manage their people and, and all of that, managers in particular experience imposter syndrome and specifically when transitioning into a new management role. The fact is that people are not just born managers and know how to manage people. Yes, they might have an innate sense of leadership, high EQ, but there are very specific competencies that our managers need to develop. And so if we go into this new management role, understanding that it is a learning curve, that we don't just arrive competent and we don't, our senior managers don't expect our managers to just arrive competent, we will save ourselves a world of hurt and those those people struggling with imposter syndrome, we will get so much more out of them. And some of the research that you've done, what does it show? Is it tend to be gender-based in any way or, or is it does it affect you know, most genders the same? From the research that I've seen is that it tends to disproportionately affect women and people of colour specifically women of color. And I think a number of things inform that. When we don't see people in our work environments who are like ourselves, so at C-suite level, if we're not seeing women on the board and we're not seeing people of color and on, on our, our boards, then we are likely to experience imposter syndrome. You know, 50 years ago, we weren't seeing 
women at university level, many women in that environment gaining qualifications, it was male dominated. And so that the systemic challenges and issues within those systems are really perpetuating that feeling of imposter syndrome. Having said that, I think because people are not talking about it, because there isn't an awareness about it, people are a lot more sensitive and a lot more anxious about about imposter syndrome. And so it will affect people with those levels of anxiety. I think the research is showing that it does affect women more, but it is not exclusive to women only. It really, anybody at any level can experience it. And I think if you just had to look at um, people in our public space, so Michelle Obama, Charlize Theron, Starbucks CEO, seriously powerful people in all different realms experience this. And so I think it's worthwhile to just do a little bit of research and and that will give us an indication of the kinds of spaces and the kinds of groups that really struggle with this. And what are some of the negative impacts of imposter syndrome? I think this a lot of these I've personally experienced. I'm speaking with authenticity here and, and I'm hoping that people can recognize the impact in their own lives and certainly on their relationships. So you tend to overwork in an attempt to prove your competence. The challenge is that it's a never-ending cycle because goalposts constantly change, projects constantly change, knowledge that is required for the different roles and and projects that we're working on changes. This need to overwork is is very, very real. And so if we don't address the, the issue at hand, We just continue to overwork because as soon as we've achieved one objective, we'll then say, oh, but that was just because we were lucky. Now we try and achieve the next one. And so it it really a high level of awareness is needed to be able to recognize that. Perfectionism. So you really believe that everyone else is doing a fantastic job and you should be able to step into a new role and be perfect at it. And you really berate yourself if you don't achieve that perfectionism. But we forget that any new role, and whether it's a role as a mother, as a spouse, as a manager, as a new person going into any role, takes time to learn. There's a period of adjustment. And so people with imposter syndrome don't allow themselves that period of adjustment. They really punish and berate themselves in that process. And so in doing so, we set impossible or unrealistic goals and we'll do whatever we can to try and achieve those. And if for some reason we don't achieve all the goals, we punish ourselves for not achieving them and say, well, it's we use it as evidence to say, you see, I knew you wouldn't go, weren't good enough. I knew you couldn't do it. And so it's quite a vicious cycle if, if we don't manage it. You have high levels of anxiety and potentially depression if it's not addressed effectively. And so if, you con- if you're constantly operating from a place of anxiety and fear, you know, your ability to make decisions is really impaired because you're not operating from a place of power and a place of confidence. You're making decisions based out of fear. And when we start to do that, we're not thinking about the process objectively or rationally, and we don't tend to make healthy decisions. I think it impacts your career development because you struggle, as an example, in performance reviews to say this is to own the work and say, I've done a good job. This is what my customers are saying. Here is the hard evidence in terms of my performance metrics for how I'm doing and what I'm doing well. You then give credit to everyone and say, no, 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 it's actually because they've done a good job. You then struggle to promote yourself for a promotion and justify 
why you're doing a good job. And sometimes you say, no, 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 I'll just let the good work speak for itself. And yes, that does work to a certain extent, but certainly in my experience and the, the various corporates I've worked in, you have to be able to articulate the value that you're adding. And if you're unable to do that, it's very difficult for people to then see the quality and understand the value that you're adding because because there's a lot of noise in the system and there are hundreds of other people being able to articulate their value better. I think for me, the most worrying is how this can impact your personal relationships if not managed properly. So I think from an overwork and burnout perspective, you're just completely exhausted because you're overworking all the time to try and prove your worth. And so that means it's time away from your family. It's time away from health. You don't sleep well because you're in this constant state of anxiety. And so the negative impacts from a health perspective and well-being and relationship perspective, it's impossible to tell how serious it is until you're in the thick of it. And if you don't have a strong support system and you don't have people that are prepared to call you out and say, you know what, this is our experience this is how what we're going to do to help support you, it can get to a point where you're kind of too far down the rabbit hole. Caitlin, I am really looking forward to recording the remainder of episodes with you. I think this is a six-part series that we are looking at. And essentially in episode three, we really delve into some of the practical tools how to overcome imposter syndrome. But for our listeners today that may have identified that they could be the imposter or could be feeling as an imposter, what would you recommend just at a very high level, one of the things that they could do to help them overcome this? I think the first thing is that people are not alone. It's not this desperate illness that you know needs a massive intervention. It's very common. If managed and if you are supported in the process, it is something that can easily be managed well. So it's not, uh, I want people not to feel that this is a, an illness. And so I think how people position it is important. I think if we know that we're not alone and we know that lots of other people are struggling with it, it's easy for us to talk about it. We can then normalize it. Since I've started talking about it, people just completely open up because they realize that, hey, actually other people are experiencing the same thing and it's okay. Understanding your strengths and your values and what you are really good at will help you to be able to start art articulating and focusing on what you're good at and say, this is, this is where I can add value. And uh, it gives you a high level of confidence if you're able to really understand where your strengths are and how that shows up in everything you do say and know helps you let that permeate throughout different areas of your life. So you aren't just developing confidence or competence in one particular area. You're saying, I'm good at this and, and I can work on it and I can share that with people. And then it, it gives you a, a level of confidence. I think for me, the biggest one is just, and it's the last one, checking assumptions. So we constantly make assumptions about what people know, how competent they are. So if we check our assumptions every time to say, hold on, did this person actually say that? Is this what we assumed that they implied or was that actually what was said? And then ask if there's evidence to support this, that assumption. What evidence is there to show that I am or aren't competent? What metrics, what data? And so once we start checking those assumptions and looking for evidence, we start to realize that actually they are just assumptions and, and that it helps us kind of reset and reframe the information that we've received about our, our competence. Caitlin, thank you so much. I am really looking forward to the upcoming episodes 
And your article is also on the talenttalks.net site. So we encourage our listeners to go in and have a have a good read of that. So it's also filled with some great explanations and practical examples around, especially focusing on managers in this particular article. But really enjoyed that. Thank you so much and look forward to the next episode. Thanks so much, Karen. Me too.